Welcome to the Report Card, where we evaluate efforts to improve the lives of families, schools, and students. One of those efforts goes by the name of Social Emotional Learning, or SEL. This is intentionally teaching kids in schools to manage their emotions, to show empathy, and to build positive relationships. And it's gained a lot of ground in the lexicon of American education over the last decade or so. And that might not be surprising. I mean, after all, it's sort of hard to find the opponents of social-emotional learning. For the most part, also, schools are part of the social fabric that we all grew up in. And much of our emotional development took place in schools. So what exactly is the case being made when we talk about social and emotional learning? And how is it distinctive from the relationship building that's always taken place in schools? To talk about the benefits and possible pitfalls of this movement for social and emotional learning, I brought on Jackie Jodel, who's an associate professor at the University of Virginia Curry School of Education and who was the executive director at the Aspen Institute for their National Commission on Social, Emotional, and Academic Development. To join us, I also asked teacher, senior fellow at the Fordham Institute, and author of the recent book, How the Other Half Learns, Robert Pondicio, to join us and share his views and some of his skepticism around the case being made for SEL in schools. Jackie, Robert, thanks for coming on the report card. Thank you. Thank you. So, Jackie, I want to start with you. First of all, This report, A Nation at Hope, which you had a hand in convening and organizing, came out from the Aspen Institute. Can you tell us a little bit about that report and your role in it? Well, it's first of all, it's it's important to give the report's full name because it really helps set the context. So it is A Nation at Risk to A Nation at Hope. Why this group came together was originally this whole notion that it was time for a rebalancing in education. We had just come off of 20 to 25 years of a near single-minded focus on testing, test prep, and accountability, and it was really time to take a look at how we were thinking about educating our children and how we define success. And it was also a a group of individuals that came together with a real deep understanding of the science of learning and development and all of the evidence that was starting to come out of that literature to really demonstrate how children learn and how schools and classrooms would need to become aligned with that learning in order to optimize educational outcomes. So this group came together and it was very simple, big picture was, okay, let's come up with a shared understanding and a shared language for what this means. And as we talk about today, that took us almost two and a half years to really get to a point where everyone came to an agreement on what this work means. And we could talk a little bit about about why that was so complicated. And then the other piece of the work was to develop what we would call a roadmap, or this is the actual report itself, that would really be able to be used by policymakers, by researchers, as well as practitioners to think about how this can be implemented at scale around the country. All right. Fantastic. Well, that's a fantastic start. I came with three questions that I wanted to go through the audience. I actually have a bunch of sub questions, but the three main questions that I have are, what is SEL? Why do we need more of it? And how do we get more of it in schools? So it took you two and a half years to kind of come and coalesce around a clear understanding in the commission of what SEL is. So what is it? It's interesting. I don't like to use the acronym SEL. Okay. I like to use more inclusive language, which I'll refer to as whole child, whole learner, whole student. And I do that because it really is more accurate 
more accurately reflects the definition of what we're here today to talk about. So a whole child approach to education, and this is really a reflection of the two and a half, three years of the commission's work, really reflects that children require, children need a broad array of skills, attitudes, and values to succeed in school, in their future careers, and ultimately in life. And intuitively, we understand what these actual skills and values and attitudes are. The skills are such things as paying attention, setting goals, planning, and collaborating with others. The attitudes are things that refer to internal motivation, persistence, and finding a sense of purpose. And the values refer to things such as honesty and integrity and responsibility. And so when you take those together, students are able to really start to think critically and consider different points of view, perspective take, as well as solve problems. Okay. So that makes sense to me. I wonder how this should be understood in sort of the context of this pendulum swing, right? And, you know, we had No Child Left Behind, which had its fair share of swinging towards tests and accountability and reading and math scores is a narrow view. Is this whole child approach or SEL, as it may be often referred to, is this us observing that pendulum swinging back the other way? I think the way that the commissioners would describe it and the way that I would describe it is it's really a rebalancing. I want to be clear. One of the reasons why the whole child approach has so much momentum behind it is because there is a large body, a robust body of literature, which demonstrates how this approach is related to better school, better career, and better life outcomes. So, you know, as opposed to the, and I'll refer to as the last 20 to 25 years of, you know, children, you know, open up the brain, dump in content, and then you have a learner. And I say this, you know, with the full appreciation that I'm, I'm simplifying, sure. <laughs> as simplifying what went Simplify on. Away. But it was, many would argue, you know, that approach, you know, was a mixed bag of results. I think that that's a pretty measured assessment of what went on. Whereas what the commission really intended to do is say, hey, wait a minute. First of all, students, children, young people need a full ar- array of skills to perform and to thrive in school. They also need to be taught in a way that, that the brain science is actually learning, is actually demonstrating how we learn. And I can talk more about that, about that brain science. It's quite interesting, and, and it's just starting to make its way into you know, schools of education. So, Robert, let me bring you in here, because this all sounds very reasonable and measured, but also large. This is a large Ooh, sort of approach. You think? I wonder, when you're on the ground talking to educators, talking to folks in education policy, Does the commission's take square with sort of the shared notion of socio-emotional learning? Yeah. Look, there's a lot to like here, but there's also a lot to to be at least somewhat skeptical of. No one should argue that a rebalancing is due and even, even overdue. I mean, even though I think my ed reform credentials are in pretty good order, I've been somewhat skeptical, shall we say, about not so much testing, but say testing culture. In other words, It's hard to spend time in schools and not be aware of the deleterious effects of whether it's test prep or just, again, what what I'll call testing culture has had on schools. 
no mother sends her son or daughter to, to, you know, third grade to prepare for a standardized test. That's just not what we're supposed to be doing. And it's somewhat dishonest to suggest that's not, that, that that pendulum has not swung too far. But having said that, I went to ed school for, you know, two years, starting in, I guess, 2002 or so. We were talking about the whole child then. So that's, that's also important, I think, to, to realize that there's really nothing new under the sun. Well, I shouldn't say that. I'm sure there are a few things new under the sun, but not that many in education. And this is, is one of those things that is perhaps, again, at the risk of sounding dismissive, there's a little bit of old wine, new bottles here, so to speak. So now if you say that that's rebalancing, great, absolutely. The danger of the old wine, new bottle, and, and again, I don't mean to be dismissive, is because education is a constantly evolving field. I, I sometimes ruefully joke that there's no field that is more ignorant of its own history than education. So you get young practitioners coming in thinking, oh, this is something new, as opposed to a rebalancing. So, you know, the messaging is everything. I think that the challenge or one of the challenges for this work, the, at least the public debate around this work, is that it suffers from the same plague that a lot of educational concepts suffer from, and that is not everyone can quite agree on what it is. So for this work specifically, to some, you know, social and emotional learning really involves a set of tools for learning. Then you have a different group that sees it as a way of promoting resilience in the face of, you know, traumatic stresses. Then you've got still another group that sees it as morality and and character building, And then you have those who focus on the neuroscience. Mm -hmm. So I think that the lack of consistency, in my mind, doesn't mean that social and emotional learning development competence is soft. And it certainly doesn't mean that it's not relevant or it's even faddish. What it means is that it's multifaceted. And at the end of the day, it's absolutely what the science is showing is that it's integral to academics. This is how learning happens. This is how learning takes place in schools. I'm curious because you you grab a number of strands that sort of fit under social-emotional learning. And social and emotional are pretty big descriptors, right? I mean, that, that doesn't narrow down the bucket. So I wonder how this sort of goes down the telephone chain mm-hmm. to where it reaches schools and we say, all right, now this is what social-emotional learning looks like in school or how it looks different. So first of all, I want to ask, are these things that we have not been doing? I mean, when I sort of hear a lot of the different versions of SEL, maybe not the neuroscience approach, but a lot of the other things that get included in that umbrella, I think, I know first grade teachers who this is what they do. This is 90% of, of their work. And when I was a middle school teacher, I did this on a daily basis. I did lots of these aspects. So I'm a little curious as to how we can get our hands around what this looks like in schools and whether it's different from teaching practice that's been there all along? Well, I think Robert would agree that there's a lot of this going on out there, a lot of great examples that we can talk about of schools and classrooms that are absolutely doing this work. And in no way was this report or the commission's work suggesting that that's not occurring. In fact, we went to great pains to go out to those places through site visits and and feedback sessions and through a range of publications to publicize, you know, the good work that is going on out there. So absolutely, I think that's the good news. I think that's the good news, that there are a lot of great examples out there. The tough part is, you know, how to take that learning and apply it to other contexts in a way that maintains the fidelity of what whole child approach is. And that, I think that is the really tough work 
that needs to be done. And that's the next stage, you know, post, post the commission's work. I can talk a little bit about what we identified as like the key elements, the commonalities across the work that, yeah. that came out of all of the site visits and studies and, and review of the literature. So they really, to drill it down to, to three commonalities, there are three commonalities of what this looks like. If you have to draw a picture, Jackie, if you have to draw a picture, commissioners, what does this look like? The first thing is that children are intentionally taught these skills. They're intentionally taught these skills through some type of curriculum or just through their work with the classroom teacher. The second thing is they're asked to exercise these skills as they learn academic content and in their interaction with peers and adults throughout the day. And the third element of success was the learning environment, that students really are in learning environments that are physically and emotionally safe and that have a feature of meaningful relationships. Relationships is key here among and between adults and students. I think that those are the commonalities that we identified across the many different models and contexts with which we examined the work. Please tell me I'm wrong about this. I have this idea in my head that we are a lot better at identifying character traits that contribute to academic success than we are at teaching them and developing them. I think that you're an educator, and I think that Absolutely. Every educator that I had, you know, the pleasure of working with during the last three years would absolutely agree with you. It's hard work. If I may, not just hard work, we're not even sure what the work is. In other words, it's a lot easier to point to integrity, honesty, grit, resilience as factors that contribute to success. But what are the interventions that help nurture, identify, nurture, create, sustain those traits that we're kind of still fuzzy on, right? Yes. My, this is my perspective. I don't want to make it clear my own personal perspective. And I'll quote someone who I've spent a lot of time with. This is Stephanie Jones out of Harvard. What she would describe if she was here is that we understand how these skills and attitudes and values relate to outcomes. We don't really understand the mechanisms through which it operates and not to sound, you know, too much like an academic. But that, that is the type of work, whether you call it applied research, whether you call it just really professional development teacher training, that's the type of work where there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. And that's, that's what, and again, I don't want to give the idea that I'm inherently skeptical about this, but I'm keenly aware that there's you know, so many hours in a day, teachers are facing any number of competing demands. My misgiving, if you like, about all this is until or unless I'm really clear on how to operationalize this. This runs the risk of becoming just one more thing we do badly. Well, I struggle a little bit with knowing, again, in a concrete way, what gets addressed here, right? So on the one hand, we can say, well, there's some neuroscience that could improve our understanding of how children learn, and that should be applied to their social skills and their emotional development, and we should bring that into the classroom and do that explicitly. We could also talk about character education, and both of these seem to be fairly disparate things with fairly disparate mechanisms to bring them to bear in the classroom. And they both seem to fall under the SEL name or umbrella. So I'm trying to figure out precisely what we're driving towards when we say we need to increase social emotional learning in classrooms. Perhaps we should start by saying, what does it look like when we're doing it badly? What (laughs) What does it look like when we're really missing it? Because I'm trying to figure out, if I am a teacher, Mm -hmm. how might I assess 
whether I am an asset or a liability along this spectrum. Well, as a parent, I mean, how we do it badly, I think there are lots of examples in the test crazy culture of the last couple of decades that show us how we do it badly. I can tell you as a mother of three boys, this is exactly why I made my career transition, you know, from working for a multinational consumer products company is thinking, holy smokes, what is going on in this classroom? I just, this is the third email, the third, well, in those days, the third hard copy note that was sent home about how I had to make sure that my, my son ate properly and slept and, you know, got prepared for this test. And, and I could see his, you know, anxiety climbing every day. And, and Robert describes in his in his book, you know, a couple of situations where he saw children demonstrate the, the stress of that of that test taking. I think we know what it looks like when we're not supporting students' social and emotional development. But let me let's just take a minute and think about what the, the science tells us, because this is not deeply understood by the teaching profession yet, because it's it's all relatively new. The whole neuroscience of learning and development has exploded in the last five years. I mean, the National Academies came out with their first report, How Learning Happens, which is language that I love because it's layperson's language explained. They just came out a few weeks ago with another report on the learning of adolescent and the science of adolescent learning. And what that brain science tells us is that learning is social and emotional. Not to get too into the weeds, what it tells us is that the social and emotional and cognitive domains of the brain operate together in the learning process. So it's not like either or. It's not like, hey, we're going to learn social and emotional over here and we're going to all the cognitive or academic developments over here. They operate together. So another way to say this in really layperson's language is what Mary Helen and Merdino Yang says from USC. She said, she'll tell you, you cannot learn in the absence of emotion. You think, therefore you feel. And then you hear Pat Cool from the University of Washington say, learning is fundamentally a social exercise. In fact, there's a social gateway to learning. And the social exercise really is the driver of cognition. So this notion that social and emotional is completely separate from the learning process, the brain science shows absolutely it's, it's integral. The other piece is that these things are malleable. You can learn these things. They can they grow over time. They're not fixed. So this is what we need to start really infusing in the way that we understand this this whole child approach to education. So I think back to the I team taught with two women. One uh, was American, one was from Ireland. We made a great team and they would say to that learning science, "Duh, we knew that all along. We've been speaking to the emotional development of our students, you know, since day one. It's part of our practice and we know these things. So again, I mean, I appreciate that brain science. The question that I would have is where and in what ways are we at a deficit of bringing these lessons or these understandings to bear? Because I think most teachers would say, I deal with emotions every day in my class. I police, corral, and chide kids into learning how to relate to one another as we go through material. So again, I'm just trying to figure out what our problem definition is where social-emotional learning is the solution that should be brought to bear. What I would say is that, again, there, I think there are great examples of how this work is, is being done. But if what you're saying is true, 
on a broad scale, then how did we end up in this situation where, you know, the last 20 to 25 years were, were in, you know, testing, test accountability, test prep, you know, environments? The problem definition is that we, we have great examples, pockets of it around the country, but it doesn't exist in broad scale. That seems to suggest that this is the opposite of, you know, testing and test prep as opposed to what you said before, what was your word, a rebalancing. In other words, I'm not sure I see the connect the dots for me. And, you know, I'm with yeah. you in yeah. that, as I think I said a moment ago, school culture is a fragile thing. We kind of, you know, went off the deep end a little bit on, on test prep and testing culture. But it's not like we stopped doing, you know, schools are by definition a social place. They are by definition fraught with relationships, good, bad, or indifferent. I mean, it's, you know, there's something I like to say is that a school is the first civic institution that a child outside of his or her family attends. So it's not like we, you know, we, we, we stopped doing one and started doing the other. So you've kind of lost me a little bit. I'm losing, I'm losing the thread. So the point I'm trying to make is absolutely it's a rebalancing. And the problem, as Nat asked me to, to restate the problem definition, it's that we went too far. We went too far. And what we're trying to do is to bring the focus back to a more holistic focus on how to on how to think about how children learn and certainly how to think about the definition of success. I struggle with this somewhat because, you know, and again, this is hooray for neuroscience. In other words, this is as, as a field, education has operated for too long on philosophy, preference, etc. We have not really been not just a, not a data-driven field, but we've not been a, a science-driven field. We've, we've just gone on gut calls, you know, or, or, or traditions in a sense. My concern about some of this is that this becomes, and again, I'm going to say it yet again, yes, we went too far on, on testing and accountability. But we, it's not like we went too far on academic outcomes. I and mean, one of the things I liked about the Aspen report was it doesn't use the language of SEL. It's social, emotional, and the AD, academic development. Right, right. right. In other words, it's a considered and appreciated effort to not take the eye off the ball of academics. So that's a good thing. My fear, as ever, is, is that we're not very good at walking and chewing gum, you know, at the same time in education. You know, we're, we're most of us concerned with doing one. What is the thing you want me to do? Okay, raise test scores. Now, what's the one thing you want me to do? Oh, attend to my students' emotional needs. And I worry that done badly, and whether it's communicated well or poorly, just the nature, like the child's game of telephone, what this looks like in the classroom, the signals to the teacher, oh, oh you're going to be something akin to a junior therapist. And that's just something we're not prepared to do. It sounds to me, as I listen to the conversation, you know, Nat's question here, let me ask you both a question. Do you believe that across this country, that in schools and classrooms, that we're tending to children's social and emotional and academic development? I would argue that it's sewn into the fabric of education. Now, whether it's being done well or poorly is, is debatable. But it's not possible to not do this, I think, if I can summarize Nat's point, right? In other words, well, this is kind yeah, of stamped I mean, on the genetic code of education. Uh, again, I think that I totally understand the argument that the test and drill culture has pushed the pendulum away from a whole child approach in a meaningful and problematic way. And by the way, if I can just interject... Jackie, what you said before about, you know, the way we traditionally have just been opening the child's brain and dumping in content. I'm right. enough of a good E.D. Hirsch Jr. disciple to, to argue we ain't never done that. That's the cliche, but that is just not the way we've ever done it. So I certainly think that there is a problem there. I don't believe that it has pushed far enough to change teachers' understanding of how they should approach children mm. and their practice to remove 
the fundamental social development that teachers approach kids with. Now, yeah. this may also be different in the upper end of high school than it would in Too elementary sure. as well. Yeah. And I could see. And I'm an elementary school teacher, right. so my mental image of this right. is different than yours. And, and I, I was in middle school, right? right? So again, you know, we're always working off our bases. Yep. From where I was, the understanding of what our job was, mm-hmm. was turning little people into bigger people. So it's, it's so the survey results, if you look at survey results, and this was part of the work that we did by Civic Enterprises and Heart, they absolutely demonstrate that teachers at all different levels think they need more support to focus on these, on the development of these skills for the children. Teachers want this. I mean, it's really, we have a couple of nice data points that we mentioned in the report, but if you drill deep into those survey results, teachers are not only do they believe this is part of their job, but unfortunately believe they're not getting the support to do this part of their job well. The second thing that you find is that students are absolutely hoping to be supported in these ways too. And the final audience is parents. Again, it's it's very similar feedback that you get from parents. They have different views about how to assess these skills, which we can talk about. But across the board, all of these different stakeholder groups, where you're talking about the educators, where you're talking about the students, where you're talking about the parents, they believe that this is absolutely the way that children should be educated. And they don't believe that they're getting the type of support that they need to do it well. Parents are supportive of this even when, and I think this is your term, not mine, when this creeps into, quote, teaching values and attitudes. Because if that happened at my daughter's school, I'd be like, "Mm, stay in your lane. That's that's not your role. That's my, my role as the parent. Yeah. There's absolutely some really interesting and really robust literature to show that parents are really clear. They don't want schools teaching values when you use that word values without actually defining what you mean, which is why I was very careful to say honesty, integrity, and responsibility. With all of these things, language is absolutely critical. You have to use sure. language and you have to be specific about what skills you're talking about, what you know, attitudes you're talking about, what values you're talking about. But parents, of course, parents you know, view that as they are the primary responsibility of building values in their children, but they also want schools to reinforce yeah, those values. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Look, I, you know, this is where I'm going to probably agree with you most, Jackie, where, where, where I am in the SEL camp, as it were, is when we talk about you know, not what the teacher does, but about school culture. In other words, and this was the dominant theme of How the Other Half Learns, the book that I just wrote. I went in there expecting to write a book about curriculum and instruction, because that's usually what I write about. And I ended up writing almost accidentally a book about school culture. So all of these things that you are defining, the level of effort, the, the, the student's comfort level, sense of belonging, sense of being seen, etc., those to me were a direct effect of the school culture there. In other words, and I'm, I'm plumbing my memory as we're having this conversation. Did, did I see intentional efforts to teach these things, or were they just the water in which the kids were swimming in? And I think it's the latter. And in that case, and this is where I think, you know, we're all on the same page on this, when it becomes the environment in which our kids are raised and you are valorizing these traits as opposed to, quote, teaching them, then you've got me. It's interesting that when you look at models of where this work is done well, Often the educators describe exactly what you describe, which they start out with more intentional teaching, and then ultimately it becomes embedded in the fabric of the school and the classroom, and then it takes on a life of its own, and it becomes much more implicit. But what I love about your last, your journey in writing your book, How the Other Half Learns, is this whole own process that 
you went through, mm-hmm. your whole own developmental process where you really came to appreciate the central role that school climate and culture plays to this work. And one of the comments that I read in the in one of the reviews of your work that you felt that if we had spent as much, if we had been as intentional over the last 20 to 25 years as we were on on the test prep culture as we should have been perhaps on the school climate culture and teaching and learning, we probably would have been farther along. Yeah. And I think absolutely that was that was one of the primary motivating factors of, of this group of commissioners that came, by the way, across many fields, military, they came from civil rights, they came from education, they came from policy folks absolutely came together with that as one of their primary motivations. The twist ending here, however, in the book, and thank you for the nice comments, well, Success Academy, the subject of the book, they put test prep and testing culture on steroids. Yes. I mean, it's, it could not be more you know, emphatic and they could not wear it on their sleeve any more than they do. So on the one hand, most of this conversation has been predicated on the idea that these are opposing values. Well, here was a school, and I, I don't know whether they're the, the, the paradigm or the opposite of that, that does all that stuff that, frankly, I don't much care for, but they made it work as part of their culture. So in a sense, it did both. They were really pushing aggressively pushing excellence on test scores and perhaps too much pressure for for some parents, not enough for others. That's a debatable question. But it fed the culture where, where kids felt good about their accomplishment and the teachers were deeply invested in that accomplishment. And so the kids go home at the end of the day thinking, oh, I'm, look, I'm good at school. I've got a I've got a level four on my math, you know, New York State math and ELA test that says I'm, you know, I'm good at school. Oddly, these two things were not opposing values at Success Academy. They were complementary. Well, it's interesting to bring this up. So if you look at some other charter school contexts where their focus on college attainment is mm-hmm. heavy and on bringing underperforming kids up high. So I'm thinking KIPP and so forth. Sure. They made a lot of strides at getting kids into college and then have been grappling with the fact that a lot of their kids aren't doing very well in college because, well, perhaps we've taken care of some of these narrower academic abilities without putting out the well-rounded strengths that the kids need to actually persevere and complete. Now, I'm not evaluating KIPP here. And by the way, I would argue just the opposite. They overemphasized, they've doubled down and doubled down again on grit and not emphasized the academic enough. But again, this is, this is my, my concern, is that we create a false dichotomy between these two things that, that is maybe not helpful. But it does raise the question, you know, we have a finite set of resources, sure. the first of which is time. Yep. Can we really do both of these? And if this isn't a rebalancing where there's been too much pressure on, you know, tests and a couple of subjects, should we just make this a pushback directly on over testing and an over orientation in reading and math? Can we not? I mean, that's the this, yeah, this is I would, yeah, absolutely this, not. Yeah. I think what what I'm really trying to drive home here and. I think Robert's going to agree with this, is that we really need to focus on school climate and culture so we so that students are learning in environments that are absolutely characterized by strong relationships. I mean, I think that's there. There are other things, but if I had to pick one thing, it would be strong relationships with an adult. Yep, absolutely. Among and between adults and students. Yeah. So that is the the first piece. And then the second piece is the whole integration piece that you have to be teaching these skills, but actually requiring within the way students are learning that they're exercising these skills while learning academic content. So it's not the either or. Well, either or. Those is, are the two things. This is where I'm at a disadvantage, not being nearly as expert as you are on, on, on the literature, Jackie. But to me, the way that you, you balance this 
ostensibly competing set of interests is not teaching, surfacing, making it explicit by embedding it within the culture. In other words, when the culture of a school rewards these traits, whether or not they are explicitly taught, because I'm still a little bit skeptical that they can be, that's how you, how you square that circle is, is, is through the school culture. Well, Jackie, that raises a good question about how do you get schools to move towards this? There's recommendations on the report on working on teacher training, on working on school leaders. What's the way that you sort of change culture in schools toward this rebalancing? So this is the problem with, you know, a commission model. (laughs) The commission model is you end the work with the report. And as someone who gave just her heart to this work for three years, it broke my heart when I realized that there was this, this flaw in the business model as a, as a former businesswoman. So I think that clearly we need to move to a situation where we start to focus on the hard work, which is, you know, what are those mechanisms that connect the development of these skills and these attitudes and these values with the outcomes? Let's figure out you know, how to build, you know, school climate culture and how we need to address teaching and learning. Now, we got very specific in the recommendations on those aspects. However, you really have to shift this conversation into a conversation about where the initial drive needs to come from. And I would argue it needs to come from communities. It needs to be place-based work. In all of the work that we did, what we saw across the places that were across the schools and the classrooms where it was most successful is there was a community commitment to making this happen that involved not just the schools, but it involved families and the community. So I think you start, that's in terms of where you start the work. It's a very decentralized process that I'm recommending. Absolutely opposite from the, you know, top down, mm-hmm. federal centralized, no child left behind approach. So I don't want to Use the test-based approach on the SEL side, but I am interested in how we measure these things. We certainly can't just come in and and feel better about our approach. So as far as trying to use measurements responsibly to push better social-emotional learning in schools and the cultures that might make that possible, how did the commission consider going about that? The commission was absolutely their, their recommendations on how to approach assessment was that the focus should be on the tools that are most robust, which really is at the school level, a lot of the school survey survey and the school school level data to reflect school climate and culture, and that the work that's being done on the individual student level is not ready for prime time. I think that's a that's a fair assessment of what the commission believes. Importantly, across the board, regardless of whether you're talking to commissioners or to parents or to students or to teachers, this whole notion of any of these assessments being used for anything that was high stakes was absolutely, you know, two thumbs down. Some lessons learned, perhaps? Absolutely. <laughs> some, some lessons learned. I know that the RAND folks, you know, Laura Hamilton and Heather Schwartz wrote it. I thought it was an, a really nice piece where they encouraged, you know, schools to start by emphasizing just like a manageable number of SEL skills and, and not to rely too much on formal assessments. And they also really talked about the need to build trust among teachers and parents in the, in the process of assessing these skills. So, Jackie, on the, on the tail end of the Nation to Hope report, 
What do you hope school leaders will do after reading the report or after taking seriously the push for a rebalancing of their approach to adequately include social-emotional learning? So if I was a McKinsey consultant, what I would hope that each school leader would do would start by turning toward their community, including parents, and building a very diverse, multidisciplinary group to start to think about how to get the whole community to come together to support this type of, of change within their, within their districts and their schools. That, I think, would be the first step. And then it's really a question of building a vision across those groups. And it's a question of really starting to think through within that context, how you identify how to implement across the three primary recommendation areas that we talked about in this commission. The first we've talked a lot about, school climate and culture. The second one we talked a lot about, teaching and learning, changing instruction, the way we talked about. And the final one, which we haven't spent time talking about, and that is what we would refer to as adult capacity. And the fact that we really need to make sure that all of the adults, not just, you know, the educators in the building, but all of the adults both in and out of the school building, have these skills, understand these skills, and are modeling them to such an extent so that they can cultivate them in the children. Robert, I want to bring you in and ask you a dissimilar form of the same question. Okay. You've heard some of this that you're on board with. Some of it makes you somewhat nervous. How would you like school leaders to use this push to advantage in their schools? Wow. That's an awful big question and might require an entirely second podcast. At the risk of avoiding the question, one of the things that I'm skeptical about here, Jackie, is that this is an awful... School culture is a near-run thing, right? There's a lot of bad ones and not that many good ones. And I remember thinking as a fifth grade teacher in a public school in the South Bronx that I just wanted there to be one way that we do things in this school doesn't have to be my way, but I want there to be one way. I want the kids to be on the same page. I want the kids to have a common understanding of what it means to be successful here, of the teachers to have a, a single set of lenses, to use a vocabulary I didn't even have, you know, to, to our school culture at the time. So I kind of intuited my way, in a sense, as a teacher, you know, lo long before we were talking about SEL. But that's a really hard thing to do in a public school system, in a union, and I'm not a union basher, don't get me wrong. But it's really hard to do when you've got work rules that almost guarantee that it's going to be a different culture in my room than Ms. Jones's room than Ms. Smith's room, for example. So I'm a little bit skeptical that we can reach a common understanding of, of you know, what we stand for, what we don't stand for outside of a school of choice kind of environment where you can hire specifically for that, where the, you know, the, the principal can sit across the desk from the teacher and say, look, this is how we do things here. Because that's what culture is, right? Culture, the common definition of culture is it's how we do things around here. So it's less about whether I think these things are valuable or not valuable. At the risk of repeating myself, it's how you operationalize it, how you make it sticky in a situation that almost everything conspires against that. Jackie, Robert, thanks for coming on the report card to talk about how to get this rebalancing right. Appreciate your, your time. Thanks for Thank yours. you. I enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the report card and special thanks to my guests, Jacqueline Jodel and Robert Pondicio. Thanks also to our producers, without which this episode wouldn't have been possible. They include Lexi West, Tyler Hoover, Sophia Gallo, and Gage Hurley at Liquid Media. I want to remind you to subscribe to The Report Card on iTunes, Google, or your favorite podcast player so you never miss another episode. And while you're there, please leave us a review to help other folks who might be interested become listeners.
We always welcome comments, questions, or topic suggestions. Send us your thoughts at ed.podcast at AEI.org. Or you can tweet thoughts to me at at Nat Malkus. Thanks for listening. And until next time, this is Nat Malkus. Nat Malkus.